louder than any other animal. Other animals are afraid when they hear the lion roar. You see it in sports a lot. Players bigger, players faster, player has more awards and accolades, but they can't get the job done and finish the race. Prime example is the Rose Bowl. It was a great game to watch, by the way. OU was playing very good. Their quarterback was the Heisman Trophy winner. But they didn't quite have enough at the end of the game. And then that team, Georgia, goes and plays Alabama. Alabama's starting quarterback had won 25 games and lost two in his time as quarterback. But he wasn't doing very good the first half. And lo and behold, lo and behold, they put in this, I can't pronounce his name, Tupperware or something. I think that was, I don't know. I'm going with Tupperware. He comes in at halftime, and arguably the biggest game that he'll ever play, or at least has ever played right now into his life right now. And he is a freshman. True freshman? True freshman. So last year he was playing high school ball. And he walks out on that field, and you'd have never known he was a true freshman. And took that team and led them to the championship. But what made that quarterback better than the one that he replaced? It's what he said after the game. That interviewer was trying to get him to talk. He said, well, first of all, I've just got to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for giving me an opportunity to play this game. Then he went on to say something that I've never seen put in print about an athlete. And And he said, while he was playing the game to keep his nerves in check, he spoke in tongues. That boy was running toward the lion because he had the power of God working in him. But isn't that the first time you've ever heard an athlete say that? Not the first time I said, I don't thank God for much. But the guy said, I was praying in tongues. Boy, I was... Don't you know he was scared? Fearful? Unsure? An obstacle? Everything about this message series, that young quarterback faced that day. But the way he won, sure he had talent, no question. But the way he won was he had a strength from the Lord. Second Samuel 23, if you turn in your Bibles there, Second Samuel 23. Each week we're going to be in this chapter. So I encourage you to read the chapter, read around the chapter. But this chapter is so packed. I want to start this morning in chapter 23 at verses 9 and 10. And after him was Eliezer, the son of Dodo. I love that name. <laughs> son of Dodo, the Ahoahite. 
one of the three mighty men with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there to battle in the men of Israel had withdrawn. He arose and struck the Philistines until his hand was weary and clung to the sword. Another version says his hand was frozen to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day and the people returned after him only to strip the slain. On September 11, 2001, four airplanes were hijacked by terrorists bent on destruction and evil. Two of the planes crashed into the Twin Towers in New York City. One of them crashed in a field in Stony Creek Township, Pennsylvania. And one plane crashed into the west side of the Pentagon in Washington, D.C. The natural instinct of people inside that building was to get out. But on that day, there were heroes who didn't run out. They ran into those burning buildings to help those that were in need. And one of those people was Lieutenant Colonel Ted Anderson. One account captures the story like this. Anderson acted like a man possessed. As others ran for their lives, he sprinted from his office toward the point of impact, spreading his jacket over shards of glass on a windowsill. Anderson had a non-commissioned officer and a non-commissioned officer named Chris Brayman boost him into the collapsing building. Together, they carried out two women, one of them unconscious and the other badly burned. Over the next hour... As the rest of the world looked on in shock and horror, Ted Anderson returned to the blaze over and over again. At one point, he and Brayman were low, were low crawling through the inferno, screaming to be heard above the roar. Arlington County firefighters finally restrained Lieutenant Colonel Anderson, not allowing him to re-enter the Pentagon, and they probably saved his life because it collapsed a few minutes later. Ted Anderson stayed there all day. <laughs> in part because his keys were still on his desk inside the Pentagon. Well, if I've got to be here, I'm going to save somebody. That night, the building superintendent let him go in and get his keys, and he drove home, listened to 52 messages on his answering machine, took a shower, cried for 30 minutes, and tried to get some sleep. The phone rang at 1 a.m., it was his boss who said, I can't sleep, let's go to work. Put your battle uniform on. So in the middle of the night, they were headed back to the Pentagon because they knew they were at war. You see, that's what soldiers do. That's who soldiers are. If you want to understand David's mighty men in 2 Samuel 23, you need to understand what drives a man like Lieutenant Colonel Ted Anderson to run back into the Pentagon. He runs toward danger. He runs to the roar. And in Ted's words, we had people inside, and it's the nature of a military guy that we never leave anyone behind. Lion chaser. That's what you described Lieutenant Colonel Anderson as, lion chaser. David's mighty men weren't the kind of men who would run away from what they were afraid of. They, these guys were boot camp trained, 
battle-tested brave hearts. Their stories are some of the most epic, the most heroic in the entire Bible. Joshub faced 800 to 1 odds, but he stood his ground. Eliezer fought until his hand froze to the sword. When the rest of the army retreated, Shammah took his stand in a field of lentils. And then there was Benaiah. And that's where we pick up the story, and that's who our video portrayed. Start, jump down to verses 20 through 23 with me. There was also Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, a valiant warrior from Kabzeel. He did many heroic deeds, which included killing two champions of Moab. Another time on a snowy day, he chased a lion down into a pit and killed it. Once, armed only with a club, he killed a great Egyptian warrior who was armed with a spear. Benaiah wrenched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with it. Deeds like these made Benaiah as famous as the three mightiest warriors. He was more honored than the other members of the, tri- of the thirty, though he was not one of the three. David made him a captain of his bodyguard. I would too, wouldn't you? One of the great challenges we face in reading a story like that is we know how it ends. And because we know the ending, we assume it was inevitable. Psychologists call it hindsight bias. It's one of the greatest challenges we face when we read Scripture, because you and I, who are Christians, already know the end. And so we're not surprised, we're not really awed when we read these stories of battles that ended in outnumbered people having victory. We're not awed about that anymore, because we already know the end. We know what's going to happen. We know who wins all the way in the very end. Why get too excited about it? We ought to see these stories as we're looking at them for the very first time. And we don't know the end. Because then the Bible will become more alive for you. Now what reassures you as you read these stories is that we know what the end is. When Brad had the first kickoff in that state championship game, Bixby's what, two, three in a row? State champion? I mean, that's like kicking off toward Jinx. Jinx wins a lot of games not because they have better talent, it's because people are afraid of them. Because they win all the time. So Brad, the kickoff, Brad, wouldn't it have been great if he already knew that they won? Ah, you just you just seen him sitting over with a tub of nachos just going at him, boy. Because he already knew. But guess what? He didn't know. It's it's one of those games you don't know till it's almost done. And when you look up on the scoreboard and you have won the game, you still are in disbelief. You know, I thought I'd seen all the championship trophies I could ever th- ever see hanging around Jinx. But that thing Brad had, he was holding it after the game took a picture of him in the family. That thing looked like it was seven foot tall. He had it way down here, that thing. 
And boy, he had a, had a smile on his face. Because the victory was sweet. You see, our victory is sweet too. It's bitter because it takes bitterness to get to the victory. That's the most bitter part of our victory. I'll wait. That's the most bitter part of our victory. <laughs> you see, when we read these stories that happened thousands of years ago, we lose that element of surprise, the element of danger, the element of risk. And that's how it is with this story in Second Samuel 23. We know that Benaiah is the one who walks out of the pit, and if we aren't careful, we assume that every trial we face, we're going to be able to walk out of the pit. We'll just be able to do it. No big deal. I mean, it's one of the craziest stories I've ever read in the Bible. How about you? God chases the lion into the pit, steps back and looks at him, and then jumps in. I just don't know about you. That's just crazy. That's like me telling my older brother, I'm going to knock you out. Then I shove him in a hole, and I jump in there with him. Well, the first part, if I could shove him in the hole, it would not be prudent to jump down in the hole. Because it could get ugly fast, especially after I whipped him down in the hole. <laughs> but if we go in just thinking, well, I'm always going to win, it doesn't really matter. It will matter. Because Satan will never, ever, ever give up trying to get you to fall. He won't. He won't. But I know for sure the image of a man-eating beast travels into your eyes and your brain. I said this earlier, but it's so true. I want to repeat it. Because your brain says, run to the lion. No. Your brain, though God lives in you right now, your brain says, run, you fool, run. Not run around, jump on it, throw him in that pit, and then jump down back in there and kill him with a spear. A spear? Give me some gun or something. Hallelujah. Man, I'd fumble around with a gun. I couldn't shoot him anyway. I'd be eaten alive. That lion would see me and say, Buffet! Here we go. Come on. We don't know where Beniah was going or what Beniah was doing when he crossed paths with this lion. All we know... It's just gut reaction. And man, it was a gutsy act. Not only do lions weigh about 500 pounds, but they run, it's estimated, at 35 miles an hour. <laughs> I don't know about you. There's some big NFL players, but none of them run 35 miles an hour. Now, I've watched Coach Bryant. I've seen him run about 34 miles an hour. Brad can run faster than that when Bryant's after him. Nobody's top clocked them, but I'll bet you. <laughs> and then you put Cousin Keith on there, it's, it's ugly for the whole thing. 35 miles an hour. Can you imagine? And don't forget, they've got these things on the end of their legs called claws. They're just a big animal, aren't they? And it goes without saying, if you find yourself in a pit with a lion on a snowy day, you've got a problem. You got a big problem. 
But you got to admit, it looks awfully good on your resume if you can say, I'm bodyguard to the king of Israel because I killed a 500-pound lion. That looks pretty good on your resume. I don't know many bosses are going to turn you down. Because they may be next. But now I landed this job with King and uh, King David being his bodyguard. He eventually became commander-in-chief of Israel's army under Solomon. So he was the second most powerful person in the entire kingdom of Israel. But it tracks and traces back to this incident, fight or flight moment that he faced. You and I face those every day. When you face an obstacle, when you face a temptation, you have a fight or flight battle in front of you. I had my blood work done the other day. I've been having some blood pressure issues. So the doctor wanted to, before they changed all my medicine or added more medicine, wanted to have a blood test check my kidney output. So she calls me with the results. She said, hey, your kidneys are stable. That's good. I said, oh, okay, awesome. She said, however, your glucose numbers are out of sight. I said, she says, we might need to adjust your insulin. I said, mm, no. She said, no. I said, no, you need to adjust my candy intake. It's Christmas, you know, and lots of candy laying around. Little bitty candies. Had my tooth pulled the other day, real back here, back here in the back, and so the instructions I have were eat soft food. <laughs> so my mother used to always eat Three Musketeers bars when she'd take her teeth out, because she said I can just suck on them and it doesn't hurt my hurt my gums. I thought, hey, I bet there's some Three Musketeer bars and all that candy up there. So what I did is got home and I said, it's time to throw it away. I have a fight or a flight option. Which one are you going to do? I'm going to fight. I'm going to fight. I'm going to get the blood pressure under control. I'm going to get the blood sugar back under control. That 50 pounds I asked you to pray for me last week started this week. Here we go. Here we go. It's not going to be pretty. It's not going to be easy. But I'm in a pit. And one of us is going to come out. So I hope you'll pray with me. I hope you'll jump in the pit with me and you'll pray real hard. Because to me, it's a 500-pound line. And what's your 500-pound line? Well, I don't have any preacher. I just got it all together, man. I'm walking tall, walking tall man. Got the world by the tail. Here we go, yada, yada. Sitting on the edge, feet swinging in the breeze. <laughs> what line? What's your obstacle? You going to run away from it? Are you going to run to it? Are you going to be afraid of the roar? Are you going to let the the roar draw you in? Are your dreams God-ordained? Are they God-sized dreams? You see, we rob God of His glory that He deserves when we don't dream big. Do you dream that this church could be full of people, every seat? I do. But dreams have to have legs. We've got to get past four, five, six people doing everything. There's no excuse. 
If Jeff says, hey, I need an extra teacher, I'll be five, six of you jump up and say, I'll teach. If we need flower beds, weeded, weeds, pull down the flower beds. Five of you jump up and say, I'll pull the weeds. We need somebody to come up here and just turn the water on and water them. And then come turn it off. Actually, we've got a timer on it. You don't even have to do either one of those. Just come check it. Four or five of you jump up and say, I'll take that. I'll take that. Boy, that'd be awesome. We need some painting done. And you probably don't paint the way that you need to paint. Because somebody will tell you that you ain't painting right. But you know what? I'll train you if you'll come. Well, what do you know about painting? Hey, I've had a bunch of guys that know how to paint. Make sure this preacher knew how to paint. Because if I didn't paint it right, they told me real fast you ain't painting it right. Crazy dream. We've got to have crazy dreams. Not only are we filling this up once, but let's fill it up twice. Oh, we ain't got the parking for that many people. Yeah, you got to get the others out and get the others in. Hello, here we go. What if we don't have Sunday school, but we have small groups that meet in other places around? Because see, church is small. If you get into this size people, you won't be able to have Sunday school here. Left we'll do somewhere else. Can you dream that? Can you dream that people are walking down the aisle every Sunday and we're baptizing them every Sunday for 52 weeks? Are you dreaming God-sized dreams? The highest attendance we've ever experienced here in my 23 years of your ministry, of my ministry here, is 240. It was on Easter Sunday. We had 40 in the early service and 100 in the second or 200 in the second service. How about that? Would we put 200 people in here? Actually, it was 140 and 100. That's what it was. 100 early, 140 in the second. Where would we put 140? We have to think and dream like every Sunday we're running double what we have here. What have we got today, Jeff? Anybody counted yet? 49. Next week we'll have 100. Uh-oh. You may not get to sit in your seat where you are right now. It's going to bother some of you. If you had 100 people next week, it would feel so full. Statistics say that you won't come back the next Sunday because you're, you're too crowded. Hey, I say sit in their lap. If you come in next week and somebody's sitting in your chair, say this is where I normally sit, so I'm just going to sit in your lap. Oh, that'd be fun, wouldn't it? How to get somebody excited? Probably get a lawsuit too. I don't want to mess on it. Well, let me ask you some questions. What's the, str- the scariest dream you could go after? What's the craziest dream you could go after? What's the riskiest dream you could go after? What's the biggest dream you could go after? One of the struggles the leadership team has right now is that we finished a year through some special gifts that people made out of the kindness and graciousness of their heart we were able to exceed our budget dream for last for 2017. We were able to exceed it by almost $20,000. I mentioned that to one person. Here was their answer. Well, then I don't need to give anymore. 
That's playing not to lose. That's not playing to win. Playing to win says, oh, well, man, I'm going to double it up then. Let's keep going. All of a sudden, you're going to have things you could do. How about building a building? How about enclosing the horseshoe out here, making it a big room, meeting room for the kids and the teenagers or whatever? How about if we just take out the pecan trees and we build a family life center right out there? In the, in the, right out there. Well, the city won't let us. Well, we'll just, well, who care? We'll blow them up. What are they going to do? Shut us down? Sure. Okay. Well, I imagine the I imagine Channel Two would love to come out and talk to them about that. First Baptist Church when they moved from here in downtown out to their new facility, bought the property, ready to go. City came out and said, "You can't build a church here, not where you want to. You got to go to the far end of your property." So the preacher looked at the city and said, "You know what?" You're going to tell a church that's been in this community a hundred years that they can't build their church where they want to build their church. He said, I'm sure the TV and media are going to love this story. He gets a call the next day. He says, Pastor Rick, you can build that church wherever you want to. See, when evil arises, you stand up. You run to the roar. You don't let the world tell you what to do. You tell the world what to do. Well, they'll kill me, preacher. You're an evil anyway. Hallelujah. Amen? And that's your ultimate goal, or you want to hang on here longer. I'm 62 years old, young by, by some of your standards, no question. Older than a lot of you. When I'm telling you 62, I can't see a whole lot to hang on to here. Said my six grandkids. That's, that's it. I don't, see, I don't see anything else. The draw is not there for me. How about you? But you got to run. you got to run to the roar. If you dare to dream big, you might want to pray about it. Amen? <laughs> you remember the story about Peter walking on water, and if you're going to get out of the boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, you'd better make sure that Jesus said, Come! Don't just jump out of the boat thinking you've got it ready to go. You better make sure that you're in tune with Jesus and you hear Him say, Come! Dive into the pit. We're throwing three of, the, three of you guys into the fiery furnace. We'll be done with you. And as they looked in, they didn't see three. They saw how many? Four. And when they came out of the fiery furnace, the king said, I don't even smell smoke on you. Whoa, 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 whoa. One of them gets thrown into the lion's den. King looks in, upset because it's his friend that is in the lion's den, only to find him sitting with the lion's head in his lap while he's patting their mane and holding the paw of the other one. Love that story. And 30 of them just sitting around listening. To him hum. Wonder what he was humming. Wonder what he was humming. Victory in Jesus. Hey, I'm waiting for somebody to catch it. Now, if you got your outline in front of you, let me give you some quick notes to take to remember when you get home. I'm going to give you, first of all, a definition of faith. Faith is the willingness to look foolish. It didn't make sense to dream some of the dreams that we're, 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 we need to dream. And see, it's not only me dreaming them, I want you to dream them. I want you to get off your 
backside and be active in doing something to help this church grow. It won't grow on my, on my strength alone. 86% of people who come to church today, come to church, join a church, be part of a church, come at the invitation of a friend. You know how much, you know what percentage preachers can draw into the church? 6%. We're pathetic. You, however, you invite them, 86% will come. And remember I told you what the success is of them coming if you invite them is if you feed them before or feed them after. Come on. Invite them. Take them to lunch. You can go down to the Golden Rainbow Steakhouse and have great breakfast. That's McDonald's, by the way, for some of you that are struggling. Golden Rainbow Steakhouse. You can do it. Faith is the willingness to look foolish. Here's something I've learned about 500-pound lines. By definition, a God-sized dream will always be beyond your ability, beyond your logic, and beyond your resources. And, brother, it's going to be beyond our resources. Because the leadership team, as I mentioned earlier, one of the biggest struggles that, that they have is how do, we, how do we somehow get these dreams in here and get these movements in here and then have the resources with which to meet those needs. It's tough. So the way it happens is that every one of us steps up. Giving in the church, sure, we talk about time, talent, treasure, we do. But folks, literally it takes treasure to move the church today. And starting, it's a starting point, 10%. Because you move from there to being a good, great giver, and then you move from there to being an extravagant giver. And the blessings mount up the higher you go. But God will get the glory when it's so much bigger than we could ever hope to accomplish. Wouldn't it be awesome to tear this church building down or better yet sell it because we've outgrown it and we're moving to a new place? I had a guy several years ago, I wasn't here maybe five years and there was a guy at the front door. I mentioned that we ought to consider that sometime because we're landlocked and all the, all the excuses or all the reasons why we could. He's beating me on the chest with his finger like this. Boy, you will not sell my church building. Last time I heard this was God's building. It's not yours, mine, or anybody else's but God's. I'll wait. I'll wait, sir. It's not ours. It's God's building. If it burned down to the ground, we could still have church. It's not this building. I wanted to smack him right there. But he's an old man, so I showed deference. Two ways to get started on your dream. But I gotta warn you. I gotta warn you. Sometimes it takes longer to get your dream to happen than you think it will. But dream. Dream it two ways to get started on the dream. First, inventory your history. Your destiny is buried somewhere in your history. Lieutenant Colonel Ted Anderson, remember who I talked about earlier, is a great example of 
destiny being buried in history. When he was 13 years old, he visited Washington, D.C. for the first time. His dad was graduating from the FBI Academy at Quantico, Virginia. They visited the Tomb of the Unknowns at Arlington National Cemetery. And Ted said that right then at 13, that's when, he said, that's when I knew that I wanted to be a soldier. Ted would go on to serve as the paratrooper for two decades, but that seed was planted when he was 13 years old. Second, one of the best ways to discover your dream is to get around others who dream. Get around a dreamer. Because dreams are contagious. (laughs) Oh, they are. There are seasons when God wants us to focus on the dream He's given us, but there are also seasons when we've got to focus on serving someone else's dream. And that's how our dreams will become reality. That's what the 37 mighty men of David did. Benaiah was serving David's dream. As his bodyguard, he was willing to trade his life for David's life. But it was David's dream becoming reality that led to Benaiah's dream job. He got a key position in the administration. He worked his way all the way up the chain of command to become King Solomon's commander-in-chief. What is faith? Let me give you two definitions of faith. First, faith is the willingness to look foolish. By faith, it is the willingness to dream unbelievable dreams and look really foolish about doing it. No one looked foolish building an ark out in the middle of nowhere. Sarah looked foolish bearing mater- uh, uh, buying maternity clothes. David looked foolish going into battle with a slingshot. Benaiah looked foolish chasing a lion. The wise men looked foolish following a star. Peter looked foolish getting out of the boat. Jesus looked foolish hanging half naked on a cross. Faith is the willingness to look foolish. And the results speak for themselves. Noah was saved from the flood. Sarah gave birth to Isaac. David defeated Goliath. Benaiah killed the lion in a pit on a snowy day. The wise men found the Messiah. Peter walked on water. And Jesus rose from the dead. Ha <laughs> ha! If you aren't willing to look foolish, then you are foolish. Well, I can't change majors. I might look foolish. I can't quit my job. I might look foolish. I can't seek out counseling. I might look foolish. I can't ask her out. I might look foolish. I can't share my faith. I might look foolish. I can't pray for a miracle. I might look foolish. I can't fill out the application. I might look foolish. I can't make the move. I might look foolish. I can't make the call. I might look foolish. Well, go ahead and look foolish. Second definition. Faith is unlearning our fears. 1 John 4.18, our memory verse. Just a snippet out of that. Perfect love expels all fear. You see, love is fearless. I was talking to Geneva one time, and we were talking about it. She said, Preacher, what are you dreaming about? And I said, well, that's an interesting question. So I began to tell her, and I said, then I used the word but. I said, but. She said, stop right there. I said, what do you mean? Stop right there. She said, if you believe that God can do immeasurably more than you could ever ask or hope, then why are you saying, I don't love you, God? I said, I'm not saying I don't love God. He said, you're loving God when you limit God. You say you don't love Him when you limit God. And then she used this verse, perfect love casts out fear. You know, and I've always wrestled with the fear of failure. What does that look like? 
you know, I used to think that to be a successful preacher, you've got to have this massive church building and thousands of people there. And I went to the funeral Friday for my good buddy Jim, and it was in the chapel of the church building. <laughs> chapel set, I bet you could set seven, eight hundred in there, <laughs> just in their chapel. Beautiful, beautiful building, beautiful room. Man, I can't imagine. See, it's not about winning or losing. It's not about success or failure. It's about obedience. Obedience. A girl named Sarah who attended her church was wanted to go to on a mission trip with the mission team to Ethiopia. She began to bail for many reasons. First of all, there was some political unrest, which made everybody nervous. Sarah had never been out of the country, so it was fearful for her. Second, it was decided to end the trip in the outback. She'd never been camping before, and so when we told her that, or when the church told her that they would uh, have armored guard, armed guards there that didn't really eliminate her fears, it kind of exacerbated them. That we had to get a bunch of shots. That she didn't like that. But long story short, she was scared for good reasons. But at the information meeting, it turned into a prayer meeting. Everyone prayed her through her fear. She went on the trip. The whole thing was amazing. It was the day when one of the most memorable days was the te- uh, in in the team's lives. They got hold, they got up at gunpoint by held up by gunpoint by armed shepherds carrying AK-47s. <laughs> They were terrified. But it was awesome because they realized that God was still in control. She, she said they went swimming in a natural spring heated by a volcano. How many of you have done that? They drove uh, games and, and had games driving on Land Rovers. At night they sang worship courses around a fire when they heard lions roaring, they hoped in the distance. <laughs> the revelation that came to her was don't accumulate possessions, accumulate experiences. So what if Sarah had run away from all that? She would have forfeited those stories and the victory that God could bring to, to her life through them. So let me ask you a question. Are you living your life in a way that is worth telling stories about? Forty forty years later, Solomon becomes king of Israel. And he chooses Benaiah. And I think he chose Benaiah because of the bedtime stories he had heard as a child. He chose Benaiah because Benaiah lived his life in a way that was worth telling stories about. But we need to avoid interaction regrets. There's two kinds of regrets. First, there are action regrets, things you've done that you wish you hadn't, and then there's inaction regrets, things you didn't do but wish you had. Don't let fear dictate your decisions. Run to the roar. Don't run away from what you're afraid of. Don't let fear dictate your decisions. Fight for the 500-pound dream God has put in your heart and become... A lion chaser. Quit living as if the purpose of life is to arrive safely at death. Run to the roar. 
Get God-sized goals. Pursue God-given passions. Go after a dream that's destined to fail without divine intervention. Stop pointing out problems. Become part of the solution. Stop repeating the past. Start creating the future. Pass your fears. Face your fears. And fight for your dreams. Grab opportunity by the main. Don't let go. Live like today is the first day and the last day of your life. Burn sinful bridges. Blaze new trails. Live for the applause of nail-scarred hands. Don't let what's wrong with you keep you from worshiping what's right with God. Dare to fail. Dare to be different. Quit holding out. Quit running back. Quit running away. Chase the lion. God, I ask you this morning, is there one here that would say, I'm going to chase the lion. I'm going full strength, full bore, full out for you right now, God. Is there one person who could say, enough's enough. I'm tired of sitting on the sideline. I want to get in the game. God, is there one that would have the courage to do that? Or are we just so complacent, so satisfied, so set in our ways that we're never going to change, we're never going to do anything different, we're always going to be the same way we've always been because that's, the, that's how big my dream is. There might be one here today, God. Would you touch them and move them in Jesus' name? Amen. I'm going to sing our song of invitation. There's something about that name.